be sanitised at the end of the service to facilitate that. Before I pray, I want to do some revision and then to ask some general questions and so on. Grace, G-R-A-C-E. What was the G? What did that represent? Genuine what? Genuine truth-tellers. Genuine in our being authentic followers of Jesus, being genuine in our speech, being honest with one another. And the R goes with that. Receptive. Receptive to God's word, obviously, and of course, but also receptive to each other's words. And remember we spoke about you could react in three different ways. You could respond as a wise person. You could respond as a fool. You could respond as an evil person. Wise person is open. Hears comments, both affirmations, but also corrections or sharing of hurts or offences and it's being open to them. A wise person says thank you for sharing that with me and I'll learn and benefit from it. A foolish person wants to sort of be defensive and block that out a little bit and they'll be deflecting it saying no it wasn't me, you misunderstood I didn't say that, Uh, no it wasn't me, blame somebody else and the E the evil person would be uh, a person who is actually, how dare you say that, I'm going to get you for that and they retaliate, they think about revenge, they pray that God will remove them from the planet or whatever it is that evil people do. That's grr. What's the A stand for? Active. Active stewards. God has given us gifts, abilities, resources, talents, and he wants us not simply to be spectators, but to be participants, to be involved in the life of the church, both in our worship, in our groups, but also in our ministries and in our lives, at home, at work, in all situations, being an active follower of the Lord Jesus. C stands for community, which is what we've just done in the last couple of weeks about how we are. God intends for us to be his new community, light in the midst of the darkness, of being connected and interconnected with each other, like branches in the vine, like sheep in the fold, like stones in the temple that God is building together. We belong together, members of the body, different and yet connected in community, knowing each other and supporting each other. And E stands for encouragement. God wants his community to be a community of encouragement. Encouragement has a twofold prong. It is both seeing that which is good and affirming it, positively encouraging. But it's observing that which is not right, heading in the wrong direction and correcting it. Both responses come under this word Paraclesis, to encourage, to exhort, to admonish. There's different English words for the one Greek word, depending on its context. The book of Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 says, but exhort one another every day. That's that word. Encourage or exhort one another, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In the world in which we live, we're sort of going against the tide a little bit. There's all these things coming at us, and that can influence us and knock us about. We can be hardened in our response by the deceitfulness. We've been conned and tricked by sin. And so we need each other speaking truth into our life, genuinely, and being open to receiving that, that we might maintain our active involvement in God's community. It all flows together. The same author of Hebrews in chapter 10 says these words, very famous words, verse 24 and following. Let's consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Come to church, think about it. Have a conversation with somebody. How can I motivate them, provoke them, encourage them to love and good deeds? Not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but encouraged to keep following Jesus. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, 
as is the habit of some. See, some people have been affected by that entourage and onslaught of sin in our world, and it knocks them about. So, be aware, look around, who's not here today? Follow them up, chase them, pursue them, encourage them to return. The passage goes on to say, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day of the Lord Jesus approaching. Encouragement. We're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to focus upon three people, Barnabas, James, and Jesus. And then here, a very specific command of the New Testament. Before I pray, there is a question for you. When was the last time somebody encouraged you? When was the last time somebody came up, noticed what you were doing, noticed your service or whatever it was, and they were appreciative? They let you know. They appreciate. They thought what you were doing was good. They encouraged you. When was the last time? Sadly, that might be the case for some of us. If you reverse the question, when was the last time you got criticised, attacked, when you were put down or whatever? And for some of us, maybe it's the bent of our sinful nature, we remember those more clearly than we remember these. I don't know why it's true, but I know it is true, and it certainly is true for me, that if I had someone come to me, if I had ten people come to me and nine of them said affirming positive things, I had one person say one negative thing, guess which one keeps you awake at night? Guess which one you remember more easily than the other? It's the negative. Why is that? Is that a personality thing, or is that true for all of us? Which then makes me ask this question. This question torments me because I've been on the receiving end sometimes. of people I think were trying to be encouraging, but in the process of them giving encouragement, they say something not helpful. If you remember weeks ago, I spoke about a little, um, um, a little fellow in a grey suit who used to go around after the service, after the visiting preacher. You remember him? The guy was a visiting preacher at a church and he went to the door and he shook hands. A little guy in a grey suit, a grey jacket, came up to him and said, you're absolutely hopeless. Remember this? And then he went out and went around and came back in and shook his hand again. He said, and what you said wasn't worth saying anyway. And then he went out and came around again and said something else negative. And hand you the thing, everybody's left. And the guy said, uh, thank you for coming. We appreciated you coming. Um, any questions? And the guy said, yeah, I enjoyed my time here, except for one thing, the little guy in the grey coat. What's his story? He said, oh, don't worry about him. He just repeats what everybody else has said. no grey coats after the service. I've had one person come to me who said that they would like maybe to take that on as a ministry in that church. Just go around repeat what everybody else is saying. Um, Here is the question that torments me. Are you sure that in the process of encouraging or affirming others, in fact, that you're not also delivering some sort of hurtful comment? In the process of wanting to be helpful, we can sometimes say something. We don't intend to hurt, but in the process of doing it, we do in fact hurt. And if you've been the recipient of that, you'll understand immediately. And if you haven't been, then you probably think, what? But be careful that what you say is for us to be genuine, to be open, receptive, to encourage each other. That's what we want to talk about this morning. So I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us in that journey. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to be together. We thank you for your word and the fact that you are committed to working through the teaching of your word. So we ask this morning, Lord, as we 
think about and reflect upon passages from Scripture that you by your Spirit might speak to each one of us. That you might comfort those who need comforting, that you might challenge, correct and or challenge those of us who need that. But through the whole process, Lord, use your word and our fellowship, our encouragement, our speech with one another to shape us and to keep us following hard, closely after the Lord Jesus. So Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Three men I want to talk to you about. First one is Barnabas. He was a Levite, which means he was a Jew from the tribe of Levi, but he's not a priest. He was a Levite who was a, an assistant to the priests. And as a Levite, he did, was not allowed to own any land in the land of Israel. So his family at some point in his history had moved to the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. His name was Joseph. The family had land on Cyprus. Um, in the process of his life, at some point he gets converted and he moves from being simply a Levite to being a follower of the Lord Jesus. He was a man who had certain traits about him and one of them was that he was an encourager. Paraclesis, that's the Greek word. Somebody who comes alongside to strengthen, to strengthen that which is right and to strengthen or to correct that which is wrong. That's fantastic. That's foolishness. A person who speaks the truth into your life and does so lovingly. That's Barnabas. That's what his nickname was, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And in this story in Acts chapter 9, we see it demonstrated. I imagine Barnabas, I don't know how you think of him, but I think of him as a really tall guy, solid, nice smile, twinkle in his eye, big black bushy beard with a vice-like grip. When he shook your hand, you knew your hand had been shaken. We had a wingspan when he put his arms out of about two or three, three metres, nine feet. I told the previous congregation, the very first church where I was the pastor, we had a guy like that. He, wasn't, he was tall, six foot four. His name was Wes, Wesley. And Wes was in his late 60s, I guess, when I met him. And he had been a Baptist pastor, but that had been a pretty rocky road for him, and he ended up after... 20 years resigning from that and now he was working with a Sydney mission of going around at night driving a van and picking up guys who were drunk or homeless and putting them in the van and taking them to a men's shelter and you know, bathing them, shaving them, feeding them, caring for them. Next morning sending them on again and he would do that. Very loving, caring, gentle, giant. Now Wes was this lovely patriarch of the church at Seaforth. He'd be at the front door and every widow, and there was a, a few of them, every single lady that came, he would put out his hands and he'd wrap his arms around them. He would like his arms went around them several times. And they all loved him and they all loved that experience. You had to be Wesley to do it. Not anybody could do it. And it's because he was genuine they received that. Well, I think Barnabas was a little bit like that. There's huge guy, loving guy, open-hearted, open-handed. When he became a Christian, there was a need for some of the people in the church in Jerusalem. And uh, whether they're unemployed or because of persecution, circumstances of life. So he had land on the island of Cyprus, so he sold it. Whether he sold it all or sold part of it. And the money he got from that, he brought that money and he gave it to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and said, here, use this to give to the people who need it. He generous, open-hearted guy. That's in Acts chapter 4. Well, you fast forward a couple of months, maybe a year or so, 
and you have this second story, the one that we had read to us. That there's another man in Jerusalem at this time, his name is Saul. And Saul is a legend, very bright, very well educated, very passionate about the ways of his fathers following the, the Jewish God. But he was obsessed with getting rid of the Christians. Obsessed with it. The Bible says in Acts 8 verse 3 and 9 verses 1 and 2, he used to go door to door, knock on the door, looking for Christians. He was thorough. He was going to exterminate them. He'd arrest them, take them to prison, do anything like that. Well, Saul was so passionate about doing it that he got even a, um, a letter of introduction from the high priest giving him permission to travel in this pursuit, obsessed with getting rid of the Christians. You know the story on the way to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appears to him in a blinding light. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who are you? I'm Jesus, and you're a persecutor. The Lord Jesus identifies with his people. And Saul, through that experience, becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus. The passage that was read to us talks about how he was immediately effective. Immediately he went into the synagogue and preached that Jesus was the Christ. And there was an immediate response. Both positively, people became followers, but also negatively. And you've swapped camps. And the Jews opposed him. Through the course of time, eventually Paul leaves Damascus and he heads south. He comes to Jerusalem, verse 26 says, when he came to Jerusalem... He attempted to join the disciples. He's back. You know, if he turned up for church on Sunday, this guy who was obsessed with killing, getting rid of the Christians, suddenly he's back in Jerusalem and he's at the door, shaking the hand of the ushers. How do you think the ushers went? I told the other service, I think they would have wet themselves. Wouldn't they? <laughs> Bolt the doors. Protect the people, warn everybody, call the leaders of the church together. And he had this emergency meeting. What are we going to do with this guy? Well, I'm a Christian and I want to join. It's a trick. It's a secret plan to infiltrate, to find out where we are, and to exterminate us. So the leaders had their meeting and they came to the unanimous conclusion uh, that it was. He was a phony. And so he was excluded. Paul tried to join, but they wouldn't let him in. Enter Barnabas, big guy, open-hearted, open-handed, a giver. He turns up to that leaders' meeting and I imagine he came late that night and as he comes in, they greeted and he says, fellas, I've got some good news for you. Yep, there's a new convert. Oh, excellent. Bring him in. Well, just there's one condition. When I bring this new convert in, um, the way you treat him is the way you're going to treat me. If he's excluded, then I'm excluded too. Ah, that's okay. Bring him in. Who is he? And they bring him in, and lo and behold, it's Saul of Tarsus. I think the leaders would have been shocked. Taken Barnabas aside somehow. He's dangerous. Barnabas would have corrected them. He was dangerous. He isn't anymore. He's on our side. What had Barnabas done? Barnabas had done what we need to do, what God requires of us to be encouragers. Barnabas had gone to the one who had been rejected or ignored or isolated or whatever. Barnabas had gone to him, listened to him, spoken to him, verified probably the truthfulness of the story, prayed with him and encouraged him, come with me. Let's go meet the leaders. So Barnabas brings Paul, Saul, to meet the leaders. He builds a bridge, establishes a relationship, gives him benefit of the doubt. That's what God wants us to be doing with one another. 
Is there a Saul of Tarsus that you know who needs to be introduced into your group? Someone who doesn't fit in naturally? Will you give that person some of your time? Will you risk the consequences of you associating with them like all others do? Barnabas was one of those sorts of people who could just go that extra mile. It was just outward going. Maybe it was a gift that he has. And encouragement is a gift, a gift of the Spirit. The book of Acts goes on to tell other stories about Barnabas. In chapter 11, he encourages the church in Antioch. He goes and gets Saul again and he brings him back to lead the church together. They go on their first missionary journey. And there's a failure on that first missionary journey. In Acts 15, we read about this young guy, John Mark, who didn't complete the task, whom Paul, now the team leader, had excluded, said, because he failed last time, he'll fail again, so no, he can't come. can't come on a second trip. Barnabas does it again. He picks John Mark. He picks the failure. He picks the dropout. And Paul and Barnabas had a knockdown, drag-out fight. They had a severe conflict to the point of parting of the ways. So Paul takes Silas and goes off on the second missionary journey. Barnabas takes John Mark. We don't hear any more about him. Who was right? Don't know. But we do know this. We know Paul was used by God greatly with Silas in founding churches. I'm not told anything more about Barnabas or for that matter too much more about John Mark. But at the end of Paul's life, when he's arrested and he's in a Roman prison, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he writes in the midst of this whole list of other names, bring John Mark because he is useful to me for ministry. Whatever had happened to that young guy, John Mark, the guy who wrote probably Mark's Gospel, that he was rescued from a failing situation where he would have been excluded from future ministry by Barnabas. We need to listen to what the Lord is challenging us about our relationships and our attitudes to others. God wants us to be like Barnabas. Benefit of the doubt. Get beside people to pick up those who struggle or stray and to encourage them back onto the course. second person for us to listen to is the brother of the Lord Jesus, the half-brother, James, the author of the letter of James. And in James chapter 2, he tells this very common story which has been repeated throughout church history. Um, probably James had observed this himself. I don't think it's just hypothetical that he's writing about. He says, My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favouritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? If we follow Jesus, then there ought not to be an attitude of elitism or of favouritism or of distinctions. Hence, all of the characters of this one colour. We should welcome all without distinction. James gives the illustration. Verse 2. If a person with gold rings, fine clothes, comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and you say to that one, oh, excuse me, sir, lovely welcome. Glad you are here. Please come sit right here. And the other guy in shabby clothes, who might be a little bit unkempt, you, with a wave of the hand, dismiss him and say, stand over there, sit on the floor, whatever you like. That's the language that James writes about. And he says in verse 4, uh, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Rich person, shiny clothes, rings on the fingers, 
In fact, in the shops in ancient Rome, just like we have shops where you can go rent clothes and probably jewelries and bags and whole outfits, so back in ancient Rome, there were particular shops you could go to and rent rings for special events, special occasions, for gold rings on the fingers, on every finger, and often two at the knuckles, on every hand, demonstration of wealth, of prestige, of status. So people would hire them. Anyway, a guy like that turned up at church. Maybe it was his own, wasn't rented, maybe he's genuinely wealthy, dressed in this lovely white robe, glistening, shining white, James says, lovely tan, clearly wealthy. And you treat him with specialness. Your eyes are on him and you don't notice this one. Previous church, we once had John Hewson come to our church, twice, in fact. Same thing happened both times. You know John Hewson? Some of you will. Uh, previous leader of the Liberal Party and you know, best Prime Minister Australia ever had. Um, His sister used to live in our area and she was on the edge of our church. She would attend our play group and stuff. She had two kids and that's the two reasons why he came. Because we uh, dedicated, gave thanks to God for their life on two separate services over the years. I noticed this, that when he came to service, to church, and he dresses immaculately, lovely suits, and he's well-groomed, and when he came, we only had one centre aisle, he would walk down the aisle and he sat in the second or front row, because that's where the family would have been for the child dedication, parent dedication. When he came, all eyes were on him. Twice. Because he was a politician, he was a dignitary. But in the process of noticing him, you don't notice others. And that's the very thing James is picking up on. If you treated him in a special way and ignored others, then that's not appropriate for us as followers of the Lord Jesus. That sin has been repeated in the church since the time of James. Hang on, hang on. And so maybe, maybe throughout your life, you've had the experience of um, this favouritism, this distinction which could be there. There are lots of stories. That's what happened to Wesley. That's why he had to leave the church and go outside into the fields because the common people weren't allowed to come into the church. He had to go out to them. Happened in the Salvation Army with the booths. My favourite story that I have told on numerous occasions is of a guy called Chuck Smith who was a pastor back in the, still is as far as I know, good Bible teacher. Back in the 60s and 70s, out of the Jesus movement, the hippies, people were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus, coming off the beaches of California, coming straight into church. We'd come in their jeans and their studded belts and all sorts of things. In the process of the particular church that he was in, the studded belts that these guys and girls were wearing were scratching the pews, the ornate pews that had been there for 100 years. And the elders of the church, through complaints from members of the church, were duly concerned. They met with the pastor, Chuck Smith. They expressed their concern to him, to which he said, leave it with me. I'll sort it out. So the next Sunday, he stood up in church, Sunday night, when all the young people were there. He said, you young people who are coming with your studded belts and you're scratching all of these pews and destroying them, there's only one thing that we can do. Pews have to go. The elders were livid, I'm sure. But the attitude is right. People and relationships come first, not making distinctions or things more important than people. There was a woman who lived across the tracks. 
she wanted to join a fashionable church. She went to the pastor of the church. And in the process of doing that, the pastor was a little bit taken aback because she came from the wrong side of the tracks. So he said to her, I want you to go home. I want you to think about this for a week. Think carefully about it. Then come back and tell me. She did that. She returned. And she spoke to the pastor again. Still want to join. He said, well, let's not be too hasty. I want you to go home. I want you to read your Bible every day for an hour. And then come back and tell me. She did that. She was a little bit put out, but she did it. She came back. Still wanted to join. He said, well, one more thing. I want you to go home and I want you to spend an hour a day praying. I want you to pray every day and I want you to ask the Lord if you if He wants you to join this fellowship. He didn't see her for six months. He saw her one day downtown the street, remembered her, and said to her, What did you decide to do? And she said, Well, I did what you asked me to do. I went home, I prayed. And one day when I was praying, the Lord spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, don't worry about not getting into that church. I've been trying to get in myself for the last 20 years. It's a bit like that. If we have this attitude of distinctions among ourselves, then we can exclude the Lord's blessing and presence from us. And as I said, sadly, this has become very common through church history. It's been repeated. Well, are we guilty of doing that? Do we discriminate? Maybe not this way. Maybe we're a bit more sophisticated than simply rich person, non-rich person, poor person. Maybe that's not our issue. But do we have other areas of discrimination? For instance, after the service, we're having a cup of tea together and standing over here are one, two, three of your friends whom you know and get on really well with and you connect well with them. Standing not far from them is another person, a person you don't know, a stranger to you, perhaps a visitor for the very first time, perhaps out of another congregation or whatever, standing there by themselves. What do you do? Do you go naturally, automatically to your friends and ignore the person you don't know? Is that discrimination? Or is it simply equally as bad, just doing that which is comfortable? What does the Lord want us to do? What about children? Do we notice the adults but ignore the kids? Or our seniors? Do we notice these people but ignore the seniors? Or is it an ethnicity thing that we avoid certain people? Well, what can we do? Well, the opposite according to this sin, which is so common, is simply to notice one another. And having noticed, to acknowledge one another. And having done that, to include one another. If you see your person here by themselves, you go to them and introduce yourself and engage with them. Then invite them to come with you to join your friends. Do both. To include, not to exclude. Barnabas. Is there a soul for us to introduce? Soul of tasks. James, do we play favourites? Are we treating everybody equally? And then thirdly, finally, the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 25, he gives a very clear instruction to his 
disciples particularly, but to everybody who is listening. We are to welcome everyone, treating others as if it was the Lord Jesus. We are to treat them as we would treat him. In this very famous passage, it's the end of the world, the Lord Jesus is talking about the day of judgment, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne of glory. And then all of the angels are there, millions of them. Then it says, and all the nations will gather before him. It's going to be quite a mass gathering. All of the nations are before him and then he will separate the sheep, the righteous, from the goats, the unrighteous. There will be a parting of the ways, a fork in the road. Then he turns to his sheep, to the righteous ones, and he identifies them by saying, come and enter the kingdom and receive the inheritance which is prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Enter, come on in. Because, and note this, for I was hungry, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Um, I was naked, you gave me clothing. I was sick, you took care of me. And I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty? When did we see you do that? Jesus' response, um, as much as you have done it unto the least of these, the members of my family, these my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. The way you treat one another is how we treat Jesus. And he expects us to be treating one another as we treat him. That's the point. That's him in the red, in the middle. We're all made in his image, marred by sin. Not exactly the same. But you've never looked into the eyes of a human being who didn't matter to God. That's Jesus' point. And these are basic services. These are not significant, big miracles. It's not, I was sick and you healed me. I was in prison and you liberated me. No, it's, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was sick, came, you cared, you looked after me. I was a stranger. You spoke to me, you included me, you invited me to become part of your family circle or your friends. The followers of the Lord Jesus are to be transformed by his grace. As we have received grace, so we are to be gracious to others encouraging, welcoming, accepting. And these practical demonstrations are important to the Lord Jesus. In this passage, we evangelicals have a great run, could run the great risk of having a filter where you don't hear what he's saying. There will be a separation of sheep and goats, but they're based upon faith and so on. Well, that's not what he says here. That's true, that will happen. But the separation comes on the basis of good deeds done. The sheep did this. The goats didn't do this. So question, do your actions, attitudes, behaviours reveal you to be a sheep or a goat? That's the confronting question. That's what we should hear coming through this passage. Where our faith is real, there will be fruit. And Jesus asks us to demonstrate that in these very practical ways in our relationships with one another. Three men to listen to. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. A big guy, open-hearted, open-handed, who gave.
people who particularly gave encouragement, who rescued Saul from being excluded, who rescued John Mark from being put on ash pile. Is there someone like that that you need to emulate, copy, Jane, and Barnabas? What about James? We need to be aware of making distinctions or playing favourites, of just hanging out with the ones whom we are comfortable with. Being a church community invites us that everybody, without distinction, is welcome and is treated fairly and openly. Or the words of the Lord Jesus, that the way we would treat him is how we should be treating others. Exactly the same. Looking into the eyes of another person and seeing the image of God and saying, this is God's will, that I treat you well. We need God's help to that end, and I'm going to pray for it. Please pray with me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you set the model, the example. You left your glory in heaven, humbled yourself, came to earth, and moved and lived among us, and demonstrated for us how we are to behave in such a way as to please God and to reflect the reality of you in our life to others. Lord, open our eyes to notice. Give us the courage to approach and to build a bridge, to have conversations which are positive and engendering, moving people into a right relationship with you. Forgive us, Lord, if we make distinctions, if we play favourites, Forgive us if we intentionally ignore or isolate some from us. Help us to be open and inclusive. Help us to be loving and generous. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would also help us to be practical so that we might reflect that which is important to you. We can't do it in our own strength, so we ask for your assistance. 